Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jim Hoven, and today we get to talk to someone who is a specialist at what they do. I love these type of episodes. Everyone that we have here makes a difference in some way, which is the coolest part of this part of my job. But when we have someone who's just really deeply rooted into something that is tangential to the rest of us, to hear that story is absolutely fascinating. So you're gonna love this, you're gonna learn some stuff. You're probably gonna be fascinated and wanna ask a lot of questions. We'll get to all those at some point by giving a way for you to ask questions that we can answer later at another time, but you are going to be pumped about this. I have with me Dr. Peter Weinberg. He's a PhD psychologist and an entrepreneur. He has a really cool concept on capitalism that we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about juries and mind selection and PTSD, who knows? Peter, you're gonna have to rein me in from making sure this is good, but I just wanna tell you, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me on the show today. Oh, you're welcome, and I appreciate it too. Thank you very much. It's always an honor to be able to come on to a show like this and to be able to talk a little bit more about what I do and to engage in what I, I have a feeling is gonna be a fantastic conversation. Yes, sir. Well, let's get to it, but before we jump into the current day, I always like to get a little history on our guests so that people can have a background information of, man, how did they get here? Who were they before to get them to this? So for you, did you always know, were you always interested in the mind of, uh, and the way things worked in people, even as a young guy to move towards psychology or how were you as a, as a, a young man? Yeah, I, I was to answer your question, yes. From the time that I was a youth, um, and I mean like maybe seven, 10 years old, was when I really started getting very interested in why people do what they do and why do we think the way that we think. And I, from that point forward, I, I was kind of on this trajectory for psychology. And then when I was in high school was when I really was like, yep, this is exactly what I would like to do. And I well, went- Was there stimulus? Did you be like, man, my uncle Mort is just crazy smart or this, the TV show, what what brought that on? Well, I, I, I that's a- Great and fascinating question, and I'm not sure if I can pinpoint an exact kind of thing when I was young. Yes. It always was something I, I gravitated to. Even as uh, a youth, I remember I would just be hanging out and people would just kind of tell me things. Okay. And I was like, this is sort of strange as to why they're telling me things. And, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like an average Joe like everybody else. Um, so I think that kind of started the process. And then when I was in high school, my father had a longtime friend who uh, was a therapist. And he would come over to, the, to dinner. And man, he was just the coolest guy. His attitude was right. He seemed to have this demeanor that I really liked. He was, <clears throat> excuse me, very calm and uh, very insightful. And frankly, he wasn't really afraid to say anything. You know, he carried this, if it's mentionable, it's manageable kind of attitude. Oh, I like that. I've never yeah. heard that. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. Yeah. So bring it into the light so that you absolutely. can manage it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm writing absolutely. that down. Uh, yeah. I, and and uh, so I think it was, it was, it was, I think that, that cemented it for me as to that is the type of person I would think I would like to become. And so I associated that, of course, with his clinical training. And so just really cemented for me, and this is what I want to do. So I went out and I did it and I got, you know, a bunch of education and then I gravitated away for a little bit and did work. I lived in Vermont for a while and did work as a recreation director 
and uh, then figured out a way to, to mirror the two. And then I started to do kind of that outward bound and wilderness and ropes course kind of therapies. Very that cool. That was a lot of fun. Um, and as great as that is, it's a lot of fun and it's a great way to work, especially with adolescents. But uh, to make a living at it is rough, it's to tough. say the least. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so I just kind of needed to move in a different direction. And uh, that's when I started to work in uh, private not-for-profits. I also ran a private practice for a while and uh, did some consulting, specifically in the mental health area, um, and just found that ultimately it just didn't meet my entrepreneurial spirit. And, uh, and so I, I had to leave, right? Because yes. it just wasn't, it wasn't speaking to me, and I don't think I was being of service in the way that I had been in the past. And I mean, it's not TVs, right? It's people. Right. And so we have to be there and we have to be there a hundred percent. So if I'm not a hundred percent for my clients, I just shouldn't be there. So That's I made amazing. the choice to, to leave and I did and had no idea what I was going to do. And a friend of mine who is no longer a trial lawyer, but was a trial dog in Chicago. And I used to help him periodically with cases. He's the one that pushed me. To, so to I want to open up the business. Absolutely. We're going to talk about that. A, a question formed in my mind as you were giving the early part of your history. And as the, the question was formulating, it literally just start, it came back to me and to a lot of the people I know, and we'll call it in the healing arts of which mental health is a huge healing art. And there are many ways to do it, just like there are many ways to do what I do as a chiropractor or medical or rehab or anything. Do you find in the, in the mental health world that a lot of the folks that go into it are what I would label as wounded healers? In other words, they've gone through something, like I got hurt playing football and that's what moved me towards chiropractic. And many people that have a similar story that they saw their family member deal with cancer and it made them wanna to go to medical school. Is the same thing true where people going into mental health have had some sort of situation close to them they're, they're like, I want to try to make a difference here because of either my direct experience or that of someone close to me? Yes. Um, I wouldn't always say that it's specifically because of some kind of wound or some kind of trauma. Um, I would say that, that it's equal between that and people who have had some kind of transformative experience of their own. Okay. And then have... Um, realize that it was so transformative that they want to try and share that experience with others. So when I did my PhD, I actually did it on um, adventure-based therapies. Oh, tell me more. Yeah, and, and so I was really curious because you know when I d dove into the research, there's a lot of methodological issues. Um, it says that like the use of for the challenge ropes course, let's say, that most of the research says it's highly effective. Um, but then when you really start diving into um, better research, I guess for the sake of a, of a better word, um, it started to bring into question effectiveness. So, you know, since I was a practitioner, specifically on the Challenge Ropes course and some adventure camping, I thought it'd be a really good idea to maybe track down what's going on here. Long story short, I conducted a a multitude of interviews with adventure therapy practitioners and my going idea was is that there maybe was some kind of like oral tradition or something that was being passed down about effectiveness that was blocking people's ability to really evaluate the research 
Um, but what I actually found was is that most of the people who facilitated had some type of personal transformative experience in the out of doors that was so transformative that it changed the direction of their lives wow. and it put them into a place of service. Wow. And did we find or did you find through your research and maybe it would be on the other side, but the folks that were receiving that blessing, if you will, of being able to try to find their own transformative experience, were, were their results as you expected, as you're saying, some of the method, methodological stuff might have been a little weird that yeah. you were looking at as you as you sifted through it. Is it super effective, and is it long term effective, or is it short term adrenaline effective from you know the foot trust falls and all those kinds of things? Um, effective, mm -hmm. yes. Um, effective when it's used with some type of uh, recognized modality like cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, even transpersonal um, kinds of therapies, and those are therapies that focus on looking at the person as a whole, and as you go through this process, there can sort of be these transformative experiences that you sort of have this sort of smashing of consciousness, where you can kind of see things clearly for a moment, mm -hmm. gives you a direction, then life gets back to normal, right? So it works well with that kind of therapy. Um, as a standalone, I don't think it's, it's that effective. I don't think you could take a group of uh, people maybe with a like conduct disorder or something of that nature who mm -hmm. are, let's say, 15 years old and put them in a group together and you know put them out and outward bound for a month and have them come back and then just through osmosis or the power of the group experience that things are going to change. I think it needs a therapy, uh, a recognized therapy that's involved in it and that the adventure part becomes the modality and how it's delivered. And it could be the anchor point yeah. of saying, man, I Absolutely. remember when, I remember Absolutely. when. Absolutely, uh, because when, when I was doing clinical work and I was working with adolescents, um, I often, you know, it often wasn't like what we're doing right now, sitting in a room and having a wonderful conversation. Um, I would take them out to the park, we'd have a walk, we'd go get coffee, we'd throw the football. You know, I taught some kids how to throw, right? Because yes. they didn't have parents who, who could teach them how to throw. And, you know, when you're having a throw, uh, a lot comes out. Yes. And uh, so that was what started me on this kind of process of uh, maybe for some physical activity is a great way for them to work out their issues mm -hmm. and to do it in a safe way because there's something visceral about it. How long have you been doing this work? And and I know that you've you talked about this big yeah, kind huge of scan yeah. that, you've, that you've gone through. But as far as when you finished training, to now, how many years? Uh, well, um, probably since um, I would say my first clinical job was in Vermont. So that would have had to have been the early 90s. Wow. Um, so you've got three yeah, decades into yeah, this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm finally feeling like I'm getting a handle on it. Nice. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this on that question. I'm taking us way off track here. Uh, but something that you said when smashing consciousness, when you use that term smashing consciousness, a big thing right now out there is psychedelics yes. and the effect that psychedelics are having uh, either in microdosing or in what I'll call a managed trip where there's uh, a professional or at least someone who's experienced like a shaman or something that is with these folks. So we're not talking about a recreational, I'm trying to get you know obliterated for whatever reason, but, but rather the psychedelic experience and I've never done it. And so I, I've just been watching a lot of show because Tim Ferriss and other people who I really respect are all about it being huge for addictive disorders, depressive disorders. So I'm very, very intrigued by the process. And so I just watched the show and it talked about for a trip that if you're not microdosing, 
that the trip is going to be determined largely by two things. One is mindset and one is environment. And that's again with the person that might be with you and, and you place. What are you seeing? And you know, you're not a psychiatrist, but you know, PhD, you've done, you know, some stuff on this world. What's your thought on that with this consciousness expansion or smashing concept? I think that we all operate under um, kind of a, a few principles. I think one is inherent health, that we're all healthy. We're all born healthy. We're all healthy. And it's environment and an experience that can generate mental illness. And even if it's biological in nature, like bipolar, schizophrenia, um, you know, we talk about there being environmental factors that trigger, uh, you know, these occurrences to happen. Um, I think along with that, we have a psychological homeostasis. And because we have a psychological homeostasis. Will you define that for people who may sure. not understand homeostasis? So, so homeostasis, right, that's this, uh, so like, you know, in a biological way, right, our body is always in balance. We always basically have a, a body temperature of, you know, 98.6 degrees. Uh, sometimes that varies a little bit, but it's our own internal biological operations that allow for that balanced heat to happen. Um, I, th I believe the same, and through my experience, I think see the same um, in terms of uh, where we are psychologically. And that part of that psychological balance is self-protection. Mm. And so we do a lot of things to keep ourselves psychologically safe. And, and that's great. And I mean, that's important. And is that a different, I'm sorry to interrupt. This is fascinating to me, all new to me. Right. It, um, is, is the, I love the term, uh, mental homeostasis, if you will. First of all, do we have different levels of mental homeostasis? In other words, um, you know, most of us have a heartbeat that's going to be in range. We have a blood pressure that's going to be in range. And if it's not, then we're not in homeostasis. Right. Mentally, is there is is it the same where all of us as humans or males or adults versus kids, like there's a homeostatic pretty tight range? Or are we wired differently where some people are meant to be warriors? They're meant to fight. They're meant to join the service. They're, and other people are meant to be healers. And other people are meant to be, you know, uh, meditative yogis. Is, is any of that connected or am I missing well, something? Well, no. I mean, I think the answer I'm going to give might not be, you know, exciting for a lot of people who chose <laughs> professions like mine or others. I sometimes think that that stuff might be random. I think okay. that I think that in the same way that our brain develop as like when we're little, right? Like infants and moving into these toddler periods, right? It's pretty random about how we develop. You know, it's, 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 I mean, we can kind of influence that a little bit, but I mean, I can tell you, you know, my son wasn't much of a crawler and my wife spent a lot of time trying to get him to crawl. So no matter- So she's worried he's behind. Exactly, she was worried that he was behind and um, no matter how much she tried to influence and manipulate that environment, it just wasn't an area that he really, he was sort of a scooter and dragger and then it just kind of ended quickly. Yes. Um, so I think it, some of these things are somewhat like this. I, I see most of this stuff as environmental forces and sometimes non-conscious decisions that we make. Um, and what is that? What's a non-conscious decision? Those two seem at odds. In, they do, don't they? Uh, so like implicit bias, I think, because that's like a good, you know, um, example of that. We all inside of us 
have ways that we view other people and that we view the world and that we view those things implicitly. We don't even yeah. really think about them. They just come from experience and we kind of register and log them and they don't really ever surface much up into the conscious mind. Mm. But those biases could, you know, be racist or they could be sexist or they could be, you know, incorrect views of who we are as people, right? And how we um, fit in the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of decision making from my view that we don't always bring up to the forefront of our minds, which is why we have things like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Because what we're trying to do in CBT is get people to actually look under the surface of why they're angry and how um, that anger could be motivated by another emotion like sadness or vulnerability or something of that nature that then affects the way a person behaves. And all that the person in therapy is saying, well, you know, this person cut me off and I'm angry, you know, and now I'm forced into, cause I did a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, therapy for people who were forced into therapy from the court system. Okay. Right. So I might have a person then say, you know, and, and, and I'm the victim because I was justified because, you know, they did something wrong. And I'm like, well, but you jumped out of the car and like, you know, hit their windshield with a brick. Right. Yeah. It's like, that's not okay. Yeah. No matter what a person might've done to get you there, you really got yourself there. You got yourself there by a series of decisions that you weren't really aware that you were making. Can you change a decision that you're not aware of making? Yeah, I think with therapy and practice. So self-awareness yes, is where it starts and then exactly, repetitive Exactly, okay. which is where I think like a lot of the sort of mindful practices and yes. things like that have emerged from. Um, but I think if you're really interested in kind of that type of practice, something like a cognitive behavioral system is really the best because these are very concrete programs that are very research based and are incredibly effective in being able to get us to say, I behaved this way because I behaved this way. I was feeling this way because I was feeling this way. This is how, what I was thinking. Mm. And this is what got me thinking about this in the first place. Mm, that's so powerful. Right? Isn't that powerful? It, it's, yeah, it, it's funny because <laughs> I was driving down here this morning. My wife and I uh, were coming to work, right? My wife's the acupuncturist here at the law firm. And so we're driving down and we're on a two lane highway and I'm literally going 70 miles an hour, right? There's a car next to me and this guy rolls up on me while I'm doing 70 and he's pushing me to go around the other car and, and he's on me. And to where I can't see his front bumper, he's on me. And back in the old days, you know, I'd have been responding a little bit differently Absolutely. than I was, you know, now at 55, I hope, yeah. you know, a little cooler minds prevail. And so I, I got, I had enough of a, of a bubbling up that I'm like, I'm not passing the guy. In fact, I'm gonna let my car slow down a little bit, not tap the brakes because he was so close on me, but I'm still going 70. I slowed down to 70. So finally it works for me to get around. The guy rolls by me and flips me off. Right? And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I was going five miles over the speed limit. You roll by me because you want to go 25 over the speed limit and you flip me off. And so I'm literally processing this as I'm going through and I'm like, should I blow a kiss back to the guy? Should I wave my hand at him? Should I give him the same signal he gave me? Now, keep in mind, I'm in a Ramos Law vehicle. So that, <laughs> that in, in, yeah, helps absolutely. to rein in my absolutely. decisions to, to far fewer. But I found myself not getting aggravated and not getting agitated. And I almost had a little empathy for the guy like, dude, where are you going? And why does it feel this way to you? 
but I don't know if is that experience over time or because I try to put a lot of training into my own world to see things from an empathetic and a tolerant point of view that I couldn't have seen 20 years ago. And that's why I was asking earlier about stages of life, right. you know, and our mental homeostasis. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, that, that those pieces, like when we talk about age, right, what we're really talking about is Erickson's developmental stages. And so, you know, hopefully as we successfully graduate from stage to stage, we do come to a place of wisdom. Mm. And you know, being, so you said I might have had a, an inkling of oh, wisdom, you had right wisdom there. because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna self-conflate, I guess, if that's the right term for it. Also, being 54 years old, all oh, right, we're the same, same age, age that's good. right? That I would like to say that uh, you know, this is the start of of the stages of wisdom because we're moving into the second half of life, okay. and so we're starting to understand through our own life experiences. Um, what is effective and what's not and what motivates people and what actually is an insult to us and what is not an insult to us. And I think that just to talk about your, 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 your situation, it's fascinating because I think it was maybe about in 2015, somewhere around that period of time, I was working on a major uh, motor vehicle incident case. And I was very curious about what motivates drivers. What is the psychology of a driver today compared to the psychology of a driver from maybe say when we were learning how to drive, right? When I was learning how to drive, I grew up in California. I drove a big old 75 Chevy Blazer. I was getting gassed 75 cents a gallon, yes. had lead in it, <laughs> you know? Yes. I mean, there are all these things, right? And, what is, and, and, and it was an emphasis of like courteous driving. You know, obviously there are not courteous drivers, right? But right. the emphasis in general was, you know, make space when someone turns on their blinker, not speed up, right? We're all in a community together. We're all on a shared road and trying to get from A to B. And if we all cooperate, we'll all get there together in enough time. So the, the federal government, the Department of Transportation, back during this period of time, did a study on, on the psychology of, of driving. And in this report, they actually found that the script is flipped in driving, that instead of seeing it as a partnership, we see each other as impediments. Really? Exactly. Competitors, impediments? Competitors and impediments. <laughs> so you were impeding the fact that you were there and not going fast enough and there was a car in front of you. In the other driver's mind, there was no need to change. Why would I go around? I'm in this lane. This is where I am going. This person is in front of me, not going the speed I want them to they should get out of the way. I'm telling them to get out of the way through my, you know, what can perce be perceived as an aggressive act. Yes. Um, and especially driving so close, right? Because there's all kinds of damage and danger that happens on highways when you drive close like that. Um, that, you know, that's what, and so he flipped you off because he was justified because you were impeding him. Yes. But that's all about him. That's right. not about you, right. right? So your reaction is the right reaction, right? That's about him. So do we continue to promote a greater level of negativity, anger and frustration, and build upon that by delivering a bird in return, <laughs> right? Or, or do we just take a deep breath, yes. you know, and sort of say, okay, this is about someone else. This this isn't about me. And and that's hard sometimes for yeah. Americans. We're very much, you know, my own personal truth is the truth. And yeah. you know, that's not a truth. That's an opinion. What role do you think, um, I'm going to use a term that I, I hope makes sense uh, that is not too generic, but personal development. Like I've been 
following the personal development movement since I was 24 years old. When I graduated from chiropractic school, I, I found Anthony Robbins and Jim Rohn. And I've, you know, so that's a long time ago, right? And uh, over 30 years. And so I've put a bunch of time into that kind of thing. And I, I feel like it's really helped me, but I know that sometimes that gets poo-pooed with respect to from mainstream medicine as woo-woo stuff and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm just interested from your perspective uh, as, a, as a PhD level psychologist on how much can we change our minds? Like my personal belief is, man, there's biological issues that are real tough to change. I've seen it with addiction where I didn't understand addiction. I thought, don't put that nonsense in your mouth and you won't have a problem, right? Because that's how I'm wired and I've never had it. Yes. And, and then surround myself with physical disciplines of training, of sleeping, of this, and then all this personal development training. And I couldn't grasp the non-changeable. That's why I was asking earlier about biases and can we control them? What, where do you see personal develop on, to, development on the scale of what we should all be doing to help our wisdom and our self-awareness maybe grow a little quicker than waiting till you're 55? Well, I mean, number one, awesome that you jumped into the world, right, of taking a look at yourself when you're in your 20s, mm. you know, um, because I believe that it's really important. I believe that um, self-development is, is necessary. And I think is one of the pieces that helps keep us in a psychological homeostasis, because I believe that what happens for us as humans is, is that life feels great for a while. And then all of a sudden, it seems like we're asking questions about ourselves or something else that creates a little bit of disruption and causes us to start to question who we are and what we're about and what we believe and who we want to be next and why we want to be that kind of person. And maybe even leave behind some of the ways we were before. That, I believe, is an internal psychological process. I believe it was Carl Jung that talked about that a human can only stay in psychological balance for so long before disruption has to occur so that we can continue to maturate. Makes total sense. Yeah, so um, that's one piece of it. Um, I see things as 70% uh, environment and nurture and see it about 30% biology in general. But you bring up some very good points, right? There are, we're all wired differently. I'm dyslexic and dysgraphic. And now what is dysgraphic? Dysgraphia is an inability to be able to take what you have in your mind and translate it into something that's uh, kind of good and coherent in a written format. Okay, so, so dyslexia is reading, yeah, dysgraphia is more yeah, writing? Yeah, dyscraphia is more like a writing and a transfer of information from your mind to the written paper. Got it. Um, I have been known to take 20 minutes to do an email because sometimes it just makes sense to me, but then as I let it sit and then read it again, I'm like, oh, this doesn't make any sense at all, right? So that's kind of like what the, what the dysgraphic thing is. So, I mean, I think we're all wired differently, right? And so because of that wiring, we do have different perceptions. And I think we always, we have limitations, right? We absolutely have limitations. No matter how much I have worked on my dyslexia and dysgraphia, right, I have tools to handle it, but I can still be driving down the street and following directions and thinking, okay, I'm about to make a right turn. I'm going to make a right turn. I'm going to make a right turn. Then I turn left. 
Mm. Because my brain's just, I'm thinking right, but because of the way it's wired, the opposite behavior happens. And boom, that's just done. And then I'm like, oh, you know, and then I'm pulling the U-turn and and doing my thing. So, I mean, I think that we obviously have biological limits, right? A person who's schizophrenic can't use environment and their will to not be schizophrenic anymore, right? We need to have to take medication and that's okay that they take medication, right? A person who's anxious might have a level of anxiety that's so great that medication helps in that. Um, and, and so I, I, I think that we all always have limitations mm-hmm. to our practices and that I think if we can get to a place that we understand ourselves well enough to understand that we fit in the world, to understand that we all feel better when we're loved over hated, um, and that we all struggle from time to time and that when we have as many people out in the world, there's always going to be a group of people that we're going to see who just are not their best. They might be doing the best they can at the moment, but that best might be tailgating you and flipping you off. Right. That might have been the best that that person was doing at the time, yes. right? And so we can judge the behavior and not the person. So good. Right? I love that. Right? Let's judge the behaviors and not the people. And then we can kind of get back a little bit more to um, some of the ways that I think we are better as people. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and, and to sort of circle back on your, you know, your question around some of the use of the, 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 you know, what were considered to be, you know, illicit and illegal drugs, right? So psychedelic like category. Like the psychedelic categories. I mean, a lot of the psychedelics were originally designed for treatments. Yes. And, you know, uh, MDMA's ecstasy um, also was originally designed for treatment. Um and I think in microdosing for sure can be incredibly helpful. And I think we are sort of, you know, I mean, I'm tangential as, you know, I said. Um, so I think we, you know, started to kind of shift off into some of these self-protection and decision-making that, you know, we're not always aware of. Um, we have a lot of self-protections, you know, Freud calls them defenses. Um, and, you know, we don't tear defenses down because that makes people feel unsafe. We know what those defenses are and as professionals, we learn how to identify them and circumnavigate them and help our patients to be able to see them safely so that we don't have a fear that somehow if we let go of this defense, we're going to unravel psychologically. Do you try to get them to, to uh, get their Dr. Peter through behavioral first? Cause there's Kind of like my hierarchy, and, and I've been listening to a lot of a guy named Andrew Huberman. He's a PhD neuroscientist out of Stanford, and um, I really agree with his kind of paradigm. Now, obviously, if you have diagnosed schizophrenia or, or one of those kinds of things, this is a different thing, but generally start with behavior modifications first, then go to nutritional supplements second, and then go to medications third so that it's a it's a kind of a progressive path that leads you on what you can control first is would that kind of make sense going that conservative path yeah. ideally from your perspective absolutely absolutely because when i was a, a treating professional uh outside of um you know when I, in private practice mm-hmm. um it was essential before therapy started for the patient to go and have a complete and full physical because it could be biological. I mean, the entire thing might be biological, Yes. right? It might be bad diet, right? It might be some other issue. Could be a tiny brain tumor 
that's making you depressed. I, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, right? Right. So what I need to know is I need to know that the medical doctor's given you a clear bill of health and that um, any ability to be able to communicate with and work with that medical doctor as the, the psychologist for one of my patients was always the best thing also too, because I agree with those types of things, right? Uh, start small. You yeah. know, and for everybody, you don't have to dive into really deep seated things from the past, right? Because there's kind of two groups, right? There are those that are, who knows if this is the popular term anymore, the mentally ill, um, who have diagnosable mental illnesses that um, you can trace back to biology, bipolar disorder, a PTSD, um, you know. Uh, psychotic disorders, right? They all have very concrete, you know, brain-based areas. Then there's another group, the worried well, who often go and mm. see therapists because they have concerns about life or they want to know more about themselves or they're uncertain and they're worried. And so I think when it comes to the worried well, excuse me, the exact things you're talking about is exactly the way it should go. Start with the behaviors. Right. And look at the behaviors and how you're behaving. And that's why I like the CBT so much, because you can pull elements of that just to start the process of self-awareness, because maybe they are eating too much processed food. Maybe they're not getting the right kind of nutrients. And man, that can leave you feeling depressed. Yes. If you eat an inordinately high amount of sugar. That can, problems happen. That problems happen. That can leave you feeling depressed. Yes. You know, and so changing those simple things can change so much for a person's life. When, if someone's stuck, I know I'm thinking of two people right now and they happen to be brothers. Mm -hmm. They're in different places. They're both young. One's 26, one's 30, but they're both stuck in their own way. And, you know, I mean, I know this family, I've known them for a long, long time. And it makes me wonder because they're both stuck, but they don't live together. They have similar, what, what I would think of as similar issues stopping them from being or moving in the direction that they want to go. Is that something where you try to work on behaviors and if they can't do those things and you try to get them to take supplements and they don't do those things and they say, man, I just don't have the energy or I don't have the motivation. Is that when where you would jump ahead and skip ahead to some sort of a, a medication or is that an individual like you just got to do a whole assessment to decide i think that's individualized i mean i look at when i did clinical work um you know when i got a new patient especially if it was through the social service system um i always waited 30 days before reading their file so i could take a fresh history and i could get a good understanding of where they are now because you know sometimes stuff gets repeated in files over and over and over again without any question. Yes. And so it's important to sort of stop and get a, get a fresh view. And then that was my technique to keep from falling into the pattern of the cookie cutter treatment. And I had areas of expertise. I'm really good at personality disorders. I'm really good at trauma. I was a really good offense specific therapist. That's sexual offense. Um, I was good at those things. Um, and I had techniques, right, for that, just like good trial lawyers have good techniques. Um, but good techniques always don't, you know, they, 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 what am I trying to say? Good techniques are good, um, but people are different. 
and environments are different and every day is different and the political environment changes and the social environment changes. And when those things change, we change, if we realize it or not. And so we have to take all of those things into consideration when we're thinking of litigation strategy or thinking of working clinically with somebody. So we have to take them and who they are at that moment in time and as they change and time changes, as the clinician, I have to change also. Wow, to, that's to stay powerful. with them, and, and that's where these kids would have to have this individual assessment. Exactly, to see what would exactly be right for them in the moment. Exactly, and it, it likely wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah, it's not. Now the treatment might be the same, right? But it might be tweaked a little bit. I might think cognitive behavioral is still the way to go, but maybe we need to start with some like what's called brief solution focused therapy, which is you know an element where you openly say, "I'm not going to be getting into any feelings or any emotions or any of those touchy feeling things." We're just going to try and figure out how to come up with some brief solutions for some of the things that are bothering you the most. And let's just start simple. That's brilliant. Right. And then that will, you know, then the trust that's developed in the relationship will bring things forward that, you know, need to come forward. And if they don't, they don't. And that sometimes as a clinician, you're just not the right match. I'm, I'm a humanist, right? That's where my training is, humanistic psychology. And so I have this very whole person view towards the way I look at everything. everything we're influenced by everything all of the time. And I'll be forever changed after this you know, meeting with you today and this conversations that we've had. And that's a good thing. Right? It, it promotes me to, to think about the world in a completely different way, right? And that always changes us. And that, that sometimes that change can be scary. And I think when we become entrenched in certain ways of being or certain ways of doing, I think that's that defense mechanism motivation, right? It's like Richard Bach, I think, wrote a story about like these little kind of like microscopic shrimp and how they grip on to um, algae in rocks. And he was using it as an analogy for when a person's stuck because life around us can seem a lot like a flowing river. And sometimes it can seem very turbulent and very scary. And then if we let go, I mean, what do we think's gonna happen? We're gonna right. get thrown we around going? like a rag doll. Where do we end up? And where do we end up? And we might even end up dead. I mean, there is a whole life preservation thing. There's a huge section of the brain, the limbic system. It's a huge section of the brain. It has all kinds of systems and functions and parts within it, but it is dedicated to our survival. It's a huge portion. I mean, when you compare the size of the limbic system to like the prefrontal cortex, let's say, right? One's like a quarter and one's, you know, I don't know, like a half a sandwich size or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a massive difference um, so there's a lot of emphasis about survival and I don't, th I mean, we've evolved a lot, but we've evolved a lot technologically. I think emotionally and socially, maybe we haven't been evolving as quickly as we have technologically. Especially as technology goes faster, Absolutely. It, it may retard some Absolutely. of our ability to develop yep. in these other ways because we become dependent yep. instead of struggling like that that butterfly to get out of absolutely the kind of absolutely thing. like looking at a map to have to plan your trip and then taking the risk of driving because you missed a street sign or street signs not there right or the yes. map is a little wrong i mean you know we have these elements and, and so i think it's it's just it's it's very important for us to be 
I think taking all of those kinds of pieces into consideration when we're thinking about what we're going to do, what we're going to do with somebody mm -hmm. and um, what strategy am I going to use to help somebody um, safely understand that they can let go and let the river take them. And that there are techniques, just like in rafting. And I lived back east and rural for a long time. And I did a ton of rafting and kayaking. And it was open kayaking, the, the closed one. That scared me too much. Yes. Um, but when you get tossed out, there are techniques to position your body in such a way that you don't get caught by the rubble underneath and stuck and pulled under. Right? So there are techniques when you let go to be able to surf that water psychologically, to be able to end up wherever you're gonna end up safely, but also let the process happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanna transition. I tell you, I hope that you'll come back like two or 20 yeah, more know, times, because I mean, this could, is so well, in depth. I, mean, I know, I'm like, wow, we could have a 12 hour yeah. conversation. Exactly, and so I wanna transition into something that you were talking about, and it kind of stimulated me from this, the tools and the river and the mindset. Tell me about your view and your tool. How is capitalism a tool? And this is going to transition us now into oh, the business side of yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to talk about that because I did. You know, I think you looked at uh, you know some of my materials, and I, yep. I did talk about that as as capitalism as a tool. When I was in college, that's now defunct Green Mountain College, actually had been in operation for like 180 some odd years, or maybe it was 130, somewhere between, maybe I'm flipping it a little bit, maybe it might be my dyslexia. Um, I had a professor, sociology professor, so it was a liberal arts, so I was psychology, sociology, and anthropology were the sort of core trainings for my psychology. And he was talking a lot about capitalism and he was talking a lot about the guiding hand of capitalism. And he was talking specifically about the idea behind the guiding hand of capitalism was designed as a social safety net. It was designed originally to scoop people up that if people were failing in a capitalistic society, there needed to be systems that could bring those people up to a level where they could participate in society, which you know, from a capitalistic view is work. Yep. And we drive so much meaning from work in our society. I mean, we can, so true. We can say, or well, I'm not capitalists or whatever, but we're, I mean, it's socially, we're just socially ingrained that way. And, and so I, I, I see that we can use capitalism and have for-profit businesses that still operate in a way where it can help people and make a profit. I like making money. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie about yeah, that. It, it helps. Exactly. And I am on a goal to make as much money as I possibly can. And I believe that I can make a lot of money by not stepping on anybody to do it. Yes. That instead of stepping on people, I can figure out how to use capitalism as a tool to bring people together so that we can achieve, we can all achieve greatness. And we can all get a slice of the pie because there's enough out there. I'm not mm -hmm. a person who believes that the pie is limited. As an entrepreneur, right, I make my pie. Yes. Right? And so why not bring a group of people to make 12 pies? I right? Love a that. group of six people make 12 pies. Now everybody's got pie and has pie to go out and sell. Yes. That right? is great. You know, and I heard this from a mentor of mine. His name was Dr. John D. Martini. And he said this, if you can get the money 
part of your life handled and out of the way. And in his definition, if you had enough money to retire, he said, then you can get on about the business of really, really following your passions. Yeah, and ideally you're, you're using your passions as your work. So you're still loving it all along the way. But if you're not thinking and focused and so driven into having to make a dollar, cause you've already made the dollars, then you just serve out of love and you serve out of caring and out of happiness and joy. And then what happens, right? Then true magic happens because you're not worrying about meeting the bills or, or doing whatever. And, and I hear you saying that. To Absolutely. Degree. I'm a huge fan of Abraham Maslow. He was a humanist. And um, that's exactly the kind of things that he talked about, right? That when we're in survival mode, a lot of our focus is just on surviving, just making that dollar so we can continue to survive. And we don't have time for loving relationships and social relationships. We don't have time to figure out how we fit in the world, right? Right. But it's only when we get out of that survival mode do we realize how we can operate in the world. And that we realize that when we operate in the world, the best way to operate is to operate through some kind of loving kindness mm. that helps Love. everybody else, right? And that is my belief. My belief is, is that I, I don't like the idea of relegating off doing the good things for people for not-for-profits. Because that says that, you know, you have to have some kind of poverty consciousness to do good in society, and that's not right. Because that allows then for a person who has a master's degree in some form of psychology, who went to some type of school, who now has $60,000 in debt, and is trying to live in it. And when I came here to Colorado, man, I was, living in almost a thousand square foot apartment for like $750 a month with an underground parking space. <laughs> Not know, today. That'd be 7,500 <laughs> bucks now. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's like, it, 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 to me, you know, that's a poverty conscience, consciousness, right? That person should be paid a living wage, right? They don't have to, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, it'd be great if they made 250 a year, but I think you'd have to show you're a serious rock star to make that kind of salary. Yes. Yet, at the same time, it should be a living wage because, you know, this is a service to, to the world and that you should be able to, you know, be able to save for retirement and, you know, take a vacation every year and, and you know, do some of those, those basic things. And so I think that kind of philosophy comes from more of a for-profit philosophy. Right. And a for-profit philosophy is less about the price tag and more about the quality. The value. The value, that's a better way to, to say it, the value, right? There's a, a, a group of consultants that uh, uh, I slightly know, and we're sort of starting to build this relationship, and when you talk to for-profit organizations, they say, this organization is great. And when you talk to non-profit organizations, the first thing they say is, oh, that group, I know I'm gonna get a big bill and they're good. Mm. But the big bill is because they're good, right? And they do DEI work, right? Which is really hot right now and really important. So it seems to me that the philosophy is if you really wanna save money in the long run, and you really wanna keep a good workforce, and you really wanna operate in a way that is representative and mirrors the communities that you serve, that might cost yes. to do that because there's value there, right? And that's what you're paying for. You're paying for the value. So I like the idea of for-profit. I was listening to, I don't know, it was the radio, and I forget what show it is, but it's a show that interviews 
folks about interesting, how did you do that or how did you make that, something like that. And they interviewed an interesting entrepreneur who is trying to develop a series of, farm, of completely robot-run pharmaceutical manufacturing companies. Wow. And by doing that, he believes he can flood the market with inexpensive medications and end this kind of conflict that's happening between producer and consumer about the price of medications. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. And it fits within your ballpark because he made a ton of money in tech. And now he's got more money than he knows what to do with. And so he's living his passions by trying to help other people. Um, not have to go through, you know, those certain kinds of struggles. So I guess I tangented there because I see all that stuff as parallel. That's something a for-profit can do, not a non-profit. Non-profits compete for these grants and they're very um, closed off to each other. And of course, for-profit businesses are closed off to each other too. But you see more mergers, you see more partnerships, you just see more drive and more innovation than I think you do in the nonprofits. From my experience, even clinical innovation was not very welcomed uh, when I brought it forward. It was very much, this is the way we do things. Don't rock the boat. Absolutely. And that just didn't work for me. So what you did do is you started a, essentially a trial consulting business. Yes, I did. And so I wanna bring that to highlight now because we work very closely with you in our firm when um, when we need to know the psychological thought processes of certain people, will you describe kind of what you do with, with us uh, for our clients? Absolutely. I, I think the, the easiest way to describe it and talk about it is um, just sort of labeling it as a psychological profile, right? As a clinician, you know, my job is to profile people, right? So that I can develop a treatment plan and then look at the research and then see who this person is. By understanding this whole person, I can then understand how to take research for various treatments and present that material in a way that the patient will learn, grow, and transform from, within the end, a hope of greater psychological health. I look at a litigation in the exact same way. So my job is to understand all the players opposing counsel, judge if I can, you know, um, obviously jury. jury, obviously I know the community, right? The venue where this trial is going to be held. Is it, you know, in federal court or is it in state court? And you know, what County are we in? You know, those things are, are very important. And I don't, I mean, sometimes I use city data, but mostly I just go to cafes and the areas trials are going to be. And I just have conversations with people to start to try and get a feel for where values are. Um, And so my job is to come in and look at the case and to understand the pitfalls and to help develop a kind of like a psychological, excuse me, a psychological view of this litigation to understand how the people I'm working with view and see the content and how that comes out in attitude and behavior and values that we express because so much of our communication is nonverbal. Yes. Um, and also to understand the opposing side and their psychology. And it's, it gets more complicated from there, right? Right. And so how do you bring that to, what do you do? You, so you go, you meet the players, you understand who they are. If you don't meet them, you figure out all of these perspectives, let's yes. call them. And then what do you do with that? 
So I, what I do is I, I look at that perspective and my next step is then to basically come up with a treatment plan, right? Which for litigation is, a, is recommendations for strategy and then specific techniques to implement that strategy. Would there it, be examples yes. of like a, of what you could give us of yes. what a strategy would and a absolutely, technique would be? Absolutely. So like one thing that I'm big on is like mental models for decision making. How do people decide? Right. And why do they decide the way that they decide and what values and what norms are you using and what moral violations seem to agitate certain people, but other people seem to think it's not a very big deal. Um, so, you know, certainly we can run that in focus groups where it gives me an opportunity to run something, you know, like a focus group is like a large group interview. And then sometimes I can do individual interviews. Um, and then we look at a lot of the content, problems in the case, ideas that we have and techniques that we want to use, um, and we test them there. Um, or sometimes we don't have the opportunity to do that and we just are going right to trial. So if I need to know what the decision making of a jury is going to be because I haven't had a chance to really prep on that, I will provide a trial lawyer a short allegory and have them read that allegory to the jury and then have a discussion. What does the allegory mean? What do you think it means? Do you think someone made a violation here? Who did you like? Who did you not like? Why is that? Oh, that's interesting. Is there a certain value you have? You seem to not like the wolf, right? Because you think the wolf's a liar. So why don't you tell me a little bit about lying? What is it that you don't like about lying? Right? And then once you get there, the story dissipates. And now you've built this wonderful relationship with this jury. And of course, it's not you know, random, right? I, right? I make suggestions that say, the, the, I'm giving you, this is, a, this is a contract dispute case where there's a clause in the contract that, that you know, we have two different interpretations about or someone's ignoring it or someone's lying about what the contract really says, right? So then we pick an allegory about a liar. And then it allows us to talk to the jury about lying. And, and it allows us to talk to the jury about the psychology of a liar. Why would somebody lie? Well, for personal gain, okay, so greed can be a component of lying, right? And then what you're doing is you're having this long conversation about lying and the motivation for lying and why lying is bad and why lying is a moral violation before the trial even starts, before even saying anything deep about what the content in the trial is going to be. So this is in the selection process. Yeah, so this is in the selection process. And then what, what I like about this, and, you know, I'm not... Um, you know, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. Yeah. I like it because no matter what side I'm working for, be it a plaintiff's or a defense counsel, that when we do techniques like that, if the other side is not prepared for that, they come in and they just kind of do their own thing and start talking about the case. What they don't realize is, is that when they're talking about the case, the juror, the potential juror, is now formulating all of that information based upon the conversation that they just had before. They just had a frame they put around exactly. the stuff that the, now they're exactly. operating within the framework. Exactly. So the compass is boxed. And that's why you have large firms and small firms alike who are seasoned trial lawyers talking about cases can be won and lost during jury selection. Now, I'm not a proponent to say, 
yes, that's true all the time, and no, that's not. But I've certainly seen it happen. Yes. Right? And I've been on cases where I get real giddy as I'm sitting behind the bar watching this whole process happen. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to win. Can you like give an right example now. of that? One, one time where you like, absolutely. man, I saw everything absolutely. fall into place where absolutely. this happened. Absolutely. Oh my God, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about this. I was working for the plaintiff, and it was a, it was a, a minivan V motorcycle. And a plaintiff is the person who was injured. Yes who is now yes. in court trying to say, look, just pay for, pay for what's right. Make yes. sure that you take care of my medical bills, my cost to live, and just make me whole. Absolutely, and she, yeah. was, she was a passenger on the back of a motorcycle. It was bad. They were pushed like 100 feet, and she was pinned underneath, and she damaged a leg. And that leg was damaged pretty severely, and so she was going to a you know, limb survival specialist, right? Someone to help her keep her limb so it wouldn't have to be amputated. And so we talked a lot about that in jury selection. An opposing counsel came and asked the jury the following, or sort of made a statement, maybe question statement, which was basically something along the lines of what would the jury think about telling her that she should just have her leg amputated because that would be better for her and just sort of financially better. Yeah, I know, powerful, huh? Wow. Wow. Unbeknownst to any of us, there was a Vietnam veteran who was in the pool, so that in the box. So, like, you know, during jury selection, they'll bring up, you know, 17 to 20 people and stick them in the jury box with one or two rows in front of the jury box. And those people get the main questions. Then there's another group to the side, you know. And, and that fella went into a monologue because the Vietnam veteran, because he happened to have worked with a helicopter crew whose job it was to come in and collect the bodies and body parts of fallen soldiers. What? And so he was so mad. God, that vet was so, and rightly so. You don't ask a person, you don't tell another person. That's body sovereignty, you don't do that. Yeah. And, and, and it was just such a major moral violation that it kind of set the tone for the entire trial, that the entire trial was gonna be based on the defense telling the jury that their responsibility was to tell this lady she was gonna have to cut her own leg off. Because that's where the conversation went. He kept saying, you don't tell people to cut their own body parts off. And, and, and then- and Even if he wasn't on the jury, he, everybody oh no, that wasn't was, on the jury. everybody that was, that's remember right. what he was talking about. That's right, and there were a couple, and oddly enough, there were three other vets that were in that pool. And he started looking at those vets and talking to the vets about systems and how systems screw vets. And it just, I mean, I just was like, oh my God, this guy is trying our entire case for us. And he did. And even though some of the other veterans kind of presented as more conservative as a psychologist, right? I mean, who were those other veterans gonna trust more? My trial strategy or a Vietnam veteran who spent three years collecting body parts on the battlefield when those three other veterans that were in the jury pool too all saw active duty. They're gonna trust him. Yes. So I had said to the, to, the, to the lawyers, I was like, don't nix the vets. Let the defense counsel nick whatever vets they want because I guarantee you the defense is gonna say these others are super conservative so they'll decide on our side because they're politically or socially conservative and I don't use those elements to make determinations about people's decision making. 
um, because I see simpatico. I have a friend who's a super Trump supporter, but we see simpatico eye to eye on some very socialist ideas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, you just, that's not a predictive, that's not a way to predict, that's a way to predict the way someone's gonna vote. That's not the way to predict the way a jury member is going to, to levy their vote for an issue like this. So the vets stayed on. We got two of the two of the four vets stayed on, and the and then I said let's just let's cut our trial down. Let's just cut our side down instead of five days. Let's see if we can get it in like three point eight days, and just really come down to the serious points, and then emphasize about the the limb saving specialist, and emphasize her story, around trying to save this limb, and there was an amazing story around this. I mean, her children were frightened of her because of this process. Like they didn't want to sit on her lap and stuff. Oh. And she was petrified that if she lost this limb, her children were gonna never think she was normal. And they would, she'd never have the relationship she had with her children before this accident. And then you got the other side saying, well, this accident's not our fault, but if it is our fault, it's too expensive and we shouldn't have to pay for her to save a limb that our doctors say is probably unsavable. That's just wrong, right? That's in my mind. That's, and being a private consultant, right? So you can pick and choose if I'm gonna you know, take a case or not, right? I'm, I can get that opinionated. Yes. I can stand up and say, that's wrong. Right. And I'm gonna use everything in my psychological arsenal to help a group of other American citizens who live in this same community to understand that this is wrong too. And that's a moral violation. And that violates our shared values and that violates our shared norms. And it really is un-American to tell a person what to do with their body from yes. my point of view. So, so true. And I think everyone listening would agree to that. How did it turn out? Did it turn out oh, yeah, better than won. you expected? Or 4.7 million, five better than I expected. <laughs> oh, um, wow. My assessment of this case was, you know, we'd probably get, you know, one, seven, five, maybe two, three. Wow. So but then sky was the limit. I think we asked maybe for like five and a half. Wow. Yeah, it was it was great. It was great for everybody. Yeah, because it gave this individual enough money to be able to save her leg, which was what she wanted to do. Because yes. that was her choice. Yes, so brilliant. Oh, Doctor Weinberg, this has been a fascinating conversation. Would you come back and do another one? Oh of these yeah, with me? absolutely. This is absolutely. Been amazing. I love this. It's hard to think that the time has just flown by already. Already, and, and so here's what I want to ask: is the final. Um, question for you and it's it's a common question and I ask it to everybody but I'm really intrigued in your because of your training and your disciplines I'm interested in this from your perspective is there a piece of advice that you've been given along the way or that you've learned that is now fundamental or fundamentally important to who you are or what you think is gonna make a better world that you would like to share with me and with our audience yes I had a fantastic mentor, and sadly he died, old age, that happens, um, Ed Barlock, and uh, Colorado native, was actually a lawyer for the Smalldone family. No kidding. Yes. Now, the Smalldone family was a... The, the, um, the, yes, the crime the, family. The crime family here. Yes. Uh, my aunt was actually, <laughs> this might be too much information for a podcast, but she was married to one of the Smalldones. Oh, God, look, this is such a small world. Way, way back, yep. God, get out of town. Yep. This is what Eddie said to me. Uh, he said, Peter, in everything you do, you have to have some fun. Because if you're not having fun, why are you doing it? 
And so I have fun in justice. I have fun in helping people. I have fun in serving other people. That's fun to me. And I enjoy it because it's interactions with other human beings. And if I can start to have fun with someone else, you know, like this entire thing was fun. We've laughed, it's been exciting, right? And when that happens, the juices flow, your brain gets excited, your defenses drop, and you become more open to the world around you. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So good. I had fun too. Yeah. And I know that everybody watching and listening had fun. If someone wanted to reach out to you to learn more, you're so fascinating, so, so much wisdom and knowledge. How would they find you? How would they get a hold of you? Well, you can certainly find me from um, my litigation consulting website, which is uh, www.trialconsult.com. Um, I also have a personal website where I talk a little bit more about my personal philosophies of capitalism and service and how we can go about serving people while still understanding the importance of turning a profit. And that is peterjweinberg.com. And then there are links to my other sites. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Peter J. Weinberg on LinkedIn. And um, in each one of those areas, there's emails and, and phone numbers that uh, you can click on. That'll bring you right to me. And I'm happy to engage in a conversation with anybody about anything. Let's do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. If, if you've been moved by this in some way, if you realize that maybe you need some mental health adjustments, so to speak, or you need some tools, or if you know someone who could benefit from trial consulting, this has just been so good and so rich. Please share this episode with folks and uh, reach out to Dr. Weinberg if that's something that you're interested in, but he's making a difference. We at Ramos are trying to make a difference. And here's my hope for you is that you'll go out and you'll make a difference too. So until next time, have a great day.